Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and I think we can start today by jumping right in on the first batch of listener mail, which is in response to our episodes on sinkholes. Are you ready, Rob? Let's do it. Okay, this first message comes to us from Thomas. Thomas says... I was just listening to your episode on sinkholes. While not actually a sinkhole, the episode reminded me of an event that happened while I was living in The Loop in downtown Chicago in 1992. I was in law school at the time and interning at a law firm on Wacker Drive. I had an office with a window overlooking the Chicago River, pretty sweet for a young intern. One day I was watching as a crew were driving pilings, basically giant logs, into the riverbed next to the Kinsey Bridge. I could feel the reverberation of the pounding even up in the high-rise where I was located. Suddenly, everyone started running around like something bad had happened. Looking toward the water, I could see what was causing the chaos. A giant whirlpool had appeared right where they were pounding the pilings. Within minutes, the area was surrounded by fire trucks and emergency vehicles. Then helicopters appeared. After a period of time, a voice came over the emergency system in the building and announced that there had been ordered an evacuation of the loop and that we had to leave the building. 
Going downstairs, I walked out into what I can only describe as a calm version of a Godzilla movie. <laughs> the streets were filled with people, and police and firemen were directing everyone to leave the loop immediately. They had called in the L train cars and just started piling everyone into them and sending them outside of the loop. I ended up on the south side of Chicago and I eventually made it to a friend's house and was unable to return to my apartment for several days. It ends up that what had occurred was one of the pilings pierced through the roof of an abandoned subway line. The water immediately started rushing in and sucked the piling through the hole. The hole then started expanding and the Chicago River was effectively draining through the hole and filling the entire underground rail system. And the reason for the evacuations, the sub-basements of the high-rise buildings in the loop. The fire department was concerned that they were going to lose integrity of the sub-basements for buildings like the Sears Tower, and, like dominoes, they would topple over. They tried everything to cover the hole, but the force of the water was too strong. At one point, they had put divers in the water with a large metal plate, but even that got sucked through and almost killed one of the divers. Finally, they were able to block the hole with a quick-drying cement that is used in underwater construction. This gave them enough time to put permanent covers over the hole, and they were finally able to let everyone back into the loop. This lasted for three or four days, and the damage cost almost $2 billion. Oh. The humorous side of the story is that, while they call it the Great Chicago Flood of 1992, it was a flood with no visible water. There is also a humorous story about why they call it the Great Leak. It ends up that floods are not covered under insurance, but leaks are. So they tried to classify it as a leak for insurance purposes. Huh. And then he uh, links to a, a wiki for the event and a link to a Chicago Tribune article from 92, which has some black and white pictures. So, uh, And then finally, uh, Thomas says, I hope this blows your mind. Well, that definitely did. I was not aware of this event. Yeah, yeah, me neither. This is, this is all new to me. The Great Leak. I like it, though. I mean, I'm not in favor of... Of, of great leaks occurring and causing property damage, but it's it's a, a fascinating little bit of history that I uh, had somehow missed out on. But the really scary part to me is imagining being a diver sent down to try to cap the leak yes. while it's still suctioning water through it. Ugh. Yeah. It's like urban cave diving or something. Yeah. Yeah. But with a drain at the bottom. <laughs> Ugh. All right, uh, here's another one. This one comes to us from Eric. Greetings, my good sirs. I just listened to part one of your episode on sinkholes, where you speculate about the reason heaven always seems to be in the sky, whereas hell always seems to be under the earth. And I have a theory to contribute. It's because of gravity. Ancient peoples didn't understand gravity the way we do, and they could easily observe its effects on the surface of the earth, and so it makes sense to me that heaven would be above, where humans cannot go freely, if at all, whereas hell would be below, where unwise or unlucky humans can end up, whether they want to or not. In short, you must strive to reach heaven, but must strive not to end up in hell, which seems to me like both uh, literally and metaphorically sound. What do you think about that, Joe? Oh, yeah, I think that kind of makes sense. I mean, another way I would put it is that I think some ancient ideas of hell as a place of punishment 
evolve from a sort of afterlife concept that is more generally the grave. I talked about this some with Bart Ehrman uh, when, mm-hmm. when he was a guest on the podcast last year, and he wrote a whole book about the evolution of at least the uh, Jewish and Greco-Roman and Christian beliefs about heaven and hell. And there, I think the the older ideas is that in most cultures of the region, there was no like reward or punishment in the afterlife early on. The earlier beliefs are just that when you die, you go to this place that might be called something like Sheol, which is like the grave. If there is any life after death, it's just this kind of like uh, shadow of your former existence where nothing much happens and it's kind of gloomy and boring, or maybe there's no afterlife at all. You're just in the ground. And over time, that translates more into the afterlife you don't want. It becomes associated with a place of punishment after death, whereas there's some kind of other existence in some other place if you're being rewarded. And that could be a uh, that could be a, a temporal uh, afterlife in which at some point you are resurrected bodily from the grave to your reward, or it could be as in the like the Greek view, the Platonic view, a place where the immaterial soul goes after death. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that sounds sounds reasonable. I, I also, I guess, have to to come back to this idea that just the idea of beings or voices originating from places that cannot be reached by humans or are not easily reached by humans uh, really resonates with us. So certainly that, uh, you know, that can apply to the sky and to the cosmos above, you know, the visible mm. uh, universe, but also the unseen world beneath the earth, uh, mountaintops, but also um, interior spaces like um, the hollows of volcanoes. I'm instantly reminded yeah. of the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the documentary, the Herzog documentary that we, uh, we recently watched on the volcanoes, uh, mm-hmm. talking about the, uh, where they were talking to the individual who had gone uh, to uh, the volcano and, uh, and had uh, like met with, be- with, a, with a being from uh, the interior, that sort of thing. Yeah. But despite all that, I mean, I also very much can see the intuitive logic of what Eric here is saying. That, yeah. like, if if they're if you're sorting afterlives or or other planes of existence into a good place that is is good to get to but hard to get to, and a bad place that is easy to get to and painful, yeah, the the up down trajectory seems quite clear there. I wonder if there I've never run across it, but I wonder if there is a culture that has an inversion of that or perhaps some sort of fantasy treatment that intentionally goes through the uh, sort of world building exercise of inverting that of having mm-hmm. you have to work to earn your place in the ground in the world below. But <laughs> if you, uh, you know, just live a careless lifestyle, then you'll eventually float free and be lost to the, you know, the cosmic horrors above the LOA and the, the Morlocks. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, a reversal of that. That would be interesting. It, well, it's neat how the, the LOA and the, the Morlocks were both horrible fates in their own way, right? Right, yeah. All right, well, uh, that was just half of Eric's uh, uh, bit. <laughs> I don't want to skip over the, the, the praise section of the email. Uh, <laughs> he writes, Anyway, just a thought I had while listening and I wanted to share. I've been listening to the podcast for ages, not only since before Christian left, but before Joe and Christian joined. Mm. And I've rarely missed an episode. I was disappointed when the Invention podcast stopped being its own thing, but I'm pleased that you've kept the spirit of it going with your periodic Invention episodes. And I've really enjoyed the little uh, artifact shorts and weird house cinema keep up the great work and thank you for the excellent content farewell and stay safe eric thanks eric 
Yeah. Oh, and you know, speaking of Christian, uh, we had mentioned Christian's uh, Kickstarter recently on the show for Corridor mm-hmm. Magazine. That Kickstarter was successful, so Corridor Magazine is going to uh, be a real thing. It's going to be a reality in the months ahead uh, when they have uh, like a date and or a website announced. I'll share it with everybody uh, probably in a listener mail episode. That is excellent news. Everybody keep an eye out if uh, horror weird fiction is your thing. Absolutely. All right. It looks like uh, the Mailbot is coming forth with more um, hellish content for us here, Joe. Yeah, more afterlife stuff. So this comes from Rachel. Rachel says, hi, guys. I've been listening to your show for many years now, and I really enjoy the things you discuss. Some of the stuff is a bit over my head, but fun to listen to nonetheless. As a former neuroscience major in college and future neurologist in medical school currently, I especially like the brain-related episodes. I've also got a soft spot for the monster episodes as a fan of horror. Anyway, the reason for this email isn't related to any of that. As you might have guessed by the subject line, what I'm really writing for is to ask this. A while ago, one of you mentioned a companion to Dante's Divine Comedy, or maybe just the Inferno, I can't remember, that gave good footnotes and such for understanding the context of the time, but I can't recall which episode it was in, so I can't go back and check. Do you remember which author translator you recommended? From a quick internet search, it sounds like maybe the one by Mark Musa is is a good start. Not sure if either of you guys had other thoughts. It'll probably be quite some time before I'll actually get around to reading it. I've got a whole shelf full of untouched books that I've collected while in school and haven't had time for, but I'm hoping to get to it someday. Thanks, Rachel. Well, Rachel, I, uh, I'm, I'm no Dante scholar, so I don't have uh, extensive opinions. I haven't surveyed like a lot of different translations, but I can tell you the ones I've read and and my thoughts on them. So when I read the Divine Comedy last year, I read uh, the the Inferno translation by the American poet Robert Pinsky, and that translation has some end notes with it that are pretty good. For the Purgatorio and the Paradiso, I actually used two different translations, uh, combining the, the translations and the notes there. One was the editions of the Purgatorio and the Paradiso by uh, Jean and Robert Hollander. I think Jean Hollander was a poet. Unfortunately, she passed away just the other year. Um, but I think she did the translation, and her husband, Robert, uh, who is a Dante scholar or medieval literature scholar, did the uh, did the notes. But then also for the Purgatorio and Parody, so we kind of read them concurrently with the John Chardy translation and footnotes. And in my experience, uh, we really liked the Gene Hollander translation, uh, but Chardy's footnotes were the most accessible. And sometimes they were they were rather funny. They were good footnotes if you really don't know anything and and just want to understand what's being talked about in the poem at a at a pretty basic level. The Hollander translation has great notes, but they go deep. That seems more like a good resource for scholars or something. It's just pages and pages of of notes on every canto. Awesome. Yeah, that that those sound like like really good good uh, additions to to look to. Uh, for my own part, I did. Uh, uh, Inferno and, and Purgatory uh, via the Robert M. Durling translations uh, illustrated by Robert Turner. Uh, I, I found those to be excellent. I, I read those as part of a, a college class on, on Dante. I had I forget the, the professor's name, but I had, was at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. 
and there was this um, this fabulous Dante uh, teacher, and he was this uh, kind of shortish uh, Italian American man, and uh, so he had he had a wonderful accent, and he had this just real enthusiasm for Dante. And I remember him talking about how he was going to dress as Dante for Halloween, and I asked <laughs> him if he was going to have the the peas. Is it peas on the forehead uh, as in purgatory? That one has to work off. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. The angel carves seven peas into Dante the Pilgrim's forehead, yes. and they are each each time he goes up one level of the mountain of purgatory, one of the peas is erased. Yeah, because he's been purged of that one of the seven sins. Yeah. So, so I ask him, he's going to have the peas on his forehead, and he says, "No, I'm in heaven." You know, like, oh, of course he's I not. See. He's not going to go as the as the infernal or the purgatory Dante. He's the heavenly uh, Dante. Um, but speaking of heaven, when I read these. Um, Derling and Turner had not put out their Paradiso yet. Uh, I, I believe it's out, or it's probably been out for like 15 years at this mm-hmm. point. But uh, but I really enjoyed those. But I also had it was, I also had the benefit of being in a class and having a really cool teacher. So uh, I think he had some supplemental information that he gave to us as well. Um, I, I feel like it's definitely a text that if you can have the original Italian like in an opposing page, like many mm-hmm. of these do, and I think I think Derling's did. It's it's cool, be, you know, to get to, even if you don't know Italian or not learning Italian, it's neat to kind of pick out some of the words, and it's especially neat with some of the demon names because oh, I've yeah. noticed some editions do a full translation of the demon names, and others leave them um, with their sort of fantastic sounding names like Scarmiglian, um, you know, and you don't you don't necessarily want that translated into whatever I forget what Scarmiglian Just calling means. them evil claws or whatever evil claws, yeah, uh, yeah. or uh, you know, or or pig nose or whatever uh, mm-hmm. the case may be, but having those those rich, uh, you know, Italian names is, is wonderful. Yeah. So anyway, I, I recommend all the ones I used. I think they're good, but but I would say if you're looking for good, succinct footnotes, I think maybe the the John Chardy translation is is the best to go with just because the footnotes are so accessible. And so, and it was a good translation too. He actually tries to do the rhyme, which some of the other ones oh, focus yeah. on less. But I also really love Gene Hollander's translation. I don't know. So any, I don't know. Uh, just take your pick from the following. Uh, but but I will emphasize yet again, like if you are interested in reading the Divine Comedy, it is not going to make a lick of sense unless you get some good footnotes to go along with it. Like it, it is just crammed with with medieval uh, like church politics and and Tuscan Italian politics and and re- references to recent history in the centuries previous yeah, like personal vendettas make, yeah <laughs> yeah it, it is not going to make the slightest bit of sense to you unless you you get a uh, an edition that has some good footnotes and, and can explain what all the references to proper nouns and all that are about mm-hmm. absolutely. All right, here's another one. This comes to us from Shani. Shani writes in and says, Hi, two interesting notes about keys from my culture of origin, Orthodox Judaism. I'm no longer observant, but I am pretty enmeshed in the community because of my very religious family. Number one, there is a Jewish law that prohibits carrying anything outside of your home on the Sabbath, including your house keys. As a loophole, some people have their keys set in jewelry or accessories, such as a bracelet, uh, a brooch, or a belt, uh, because if the keys are part of your attire, it is permissible to wear outside. 
Number two, there is a Jewish custom that before the first Sabbath after Passover, remembering how the Jews were freed from Egypt and then wandered homeless around the desert for 40 years, many women will place a key into their challah dough before baking it as a uh, segula, loosely defined good omen, to always have a home to live in. I am not sure where this tradition originated. I have a feeling that it is based on an old Christian Easter tradition of forming bread to look like a cross, but I haven't found anything to substantiate that. I love your podcast, especially when it somehow tries different cultures. I'm sorry, I think it's supposed to be ties, different cultures and histories together. Best, Shani. I also like it when it does that. <laughs> Thank you, Shani. Yeah. Yeah, this is really interesting. I I love rituals like this. Like the uh, uh, another thing that I like when they come together are the intersections of religious beliefs, rules, and prohibitions, sort of interacting with the practicalities of life, as we see explained, uh, especially in, in in your first point there. Rob, do you do y'all ever get hollow bread? Um, I guess we do. I'm not remembering yeah. it offhand, um, but I think we have. Yeah, There's some some places in town that make good. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I, I am I'm very much in favor of bread. Um, <laughs> I wonder, have we ever done an episode that really goes into any um, bit of uh, Hebraic ritual? Uh, I mean, I, obviously, we dealt with like the Ark of the Covenant and all that, but um, any uh, I'm trying to think uh, if it's come up in like yeah, any of I our technology-based like invention episodes. Yeah, I feel like it's come up a good bit here and there. Okay, maybe I'm just blanking. I can only remember the Ark all of a sudden, so it's kind of all-consuming like that. Oh, uh, we had a great piece of listener mail sometime last year when we did a couple of episodes about pointing that involved the yod. Yes, the, that's right. Uh, the the little pointer stick with the finger on it used for reading the Torah. That's right. Yeah, that's that that was a really good one. Okay. All right, now I feel better. Okay. Um but yeah, I would like if there are any other uh, topics of that nature uh that uh, that we could be covering. Yeah, we'll have to uh, let us know listeners. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, this next message is about chemistry. It refers back to our episode on heavy water, but also a subsequent listener mail. Uh, And it is from Brett, who has written in before. Brett says... Hello, Robert and Joe. I hope you are both doing well and that 2021 has treated you kindly thus far. It's Brett again. I recently wrote uh, in about dichloromethane, or DCM, for organic synthesis and the Christmas tree ornament, which you read. Thank you. During that listener mail, another listener wrote in about heavy water, and it was then I realized I missed that podcast and had to go back, so pardon the late response. Deuterated water has a great history, and thank you for sharing it. As an organic chemist, people in my field rely on the properties of deuterium daily, not just for incorporation into potential active ingredients, which you mentioned, but also for uh, for solvent to characterize our compounds that we synthesize. Let me explain. I mentioned that chemists use nuclear magnetic resonance, or NMR, to help provide us with information about the type of carbon-hydrogen bonds that our compounds possess. 
The NMR is so finely tuned that it detects the presence of these carbon-hydrogen bonds with great accuracy and precision, reproducibly. But, in order to obtain a spectra, for the most part, we use deuterated solvents, which all derive from heavy water. Deuterated solvents such as chloroform, methanol, and dimethyl sulfoxide allow the NMR to lock and shim, and I looked that up, I didn't know what that was, but that is a term in in, uh, nuclear magnetic resonance. Uh, to lock and shim based on the carbon-deuterium bond, allowing the instrument to focus on the small amount of material we are concerned with. If the solvent did not contain deuterium and only hydrogen, then the solvent would drown out the signal for our compounds because of how many more molecules of solvent there would be compared to our material. And then Brett says, maybe you know about the mole, uh, the MOL. Uh, I don't know much about it. I think that is that is a measure used in chemistry of like the number of elementary particles in a sample. Or, or I think it's the number of elementary particles that are equal to like a certain number of grams of carbon or something. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm no expert on that. Uh, but so I obviously don't know a lot about it. <laughs> um, Brett goes on. We also use a deuterated solvent to help us understand the mechanism of a reaction, how a reaction might proceed, by by exchanging a hydrogen for a deuterium atom, which when using NMR, the carbon-deuterium bond would not be present. Amazing how we can obtain information on something we cannot see and how we rely on instruments to help us figure out what we're doing. Thanks again for always providing great fodder for the mind. Tritium topic anytime soon? Best, (laughs) Brett. Uh, tritium, of course, being uh, the even heavier hydrogen. We, you know, we were talking mainly about uh, deuterium in that episode, which is hydrogen that's got a, uh, a one neutron in the nucleus where it normally would have no neutrons. Tritium has two neutrons, and, and it, gets, it gets really hairy. Yeah, um, I, I've I've mined a lot of it in No Man's Sky before. Uh, I forget what it's for offhand because I've been I haven't played it in about a month, but uh, I look forward to picking it back up. It kind of um, I think it's ultimately. You know, it's not the most educational of games, but it's uh, it's a pretty tame one to play with my son uh, around and let him play it some. And mm-hmm. he, he, it'll hopefully educate him about some of these elements. Uh, maybe yeah. not like what their actual purposes are, but <laughs> just like what the names of them are. Yeah, just like the names will sink in and the abbreviations will sink in. Like that's mm-hmm. that's more than I had in video games uh, at his age. So I'll uh, take it. Yeah, same here. Great. Uh, so yeah, maybe we go to even heavier hydrogen. We'll do something on tritium, and then we can do what's beyond. He- heavy heavy hydrogen like uh like death hydrogen or thrash hydrogen thrash hydrogen yeah <laughs> yeah symphonic death hydrogen that sounds good all right um you know we also received some uh weird house cinema listener mails here so we'll we'll dig into these a little bit uh and, and i have to say that um Carney the mailbot has been very excited um, uh, because you know he's he's very much into the idea of uh, champion combat <laughs> Uh, this first one comes to us from Jim in New Jersey, who, of course, is a, is a regular uh, listener mail um, uh, writer. Uh, he says, Robert and Joe, in Friday's Weird House Cinema, you featured Arena, where you mentioned that the password to a casino was swordfish. I don't know if this is the first use of swordfish, but it appears in the Marx Brothers movie Horse Feathers as the password to a speakeasy. And Jim includes a, a clip. Uh, I went and watched this, and this is a wonderful scene. You know, the comedy of Eon's past is 
sometimes just not very funny anymore. It often, mm-hmm. often comedy does not translate across generations very well. But this scene is still really funny. It's great. <laughs> it's uh, 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 Groucho and uh, is it Chico or Chicho? I spell like Chico. I, I guess Chico or Chicho Marx um, is on the inside and Groucho's on the outside and they're, they're talking through the, the little window in the door and, and Groucho's got like three guesses to figure out how, what the password is. And he gets mm-hmm. the hint that it's the name of a fish. And his first guess is Mary, which made me laugh a lot. <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't really seen a bunch of Marx brothers. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to, I mean, outside of just a few bits, you know, clips here and there, like I think they did a mirror gag that, uh, mm-hmm. that I think everybody has, has seen, but, but it is notable that, you know, especially for like a previous generation of filmmakers would have been even more familiar with Marx Brothers, you know, so uh, it, it makes sense that we see these little nods in these films uh, to some of their work. There's that great scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where Sean Connery has mailed his diary to Harrison Ford in order for safekeeping because he's been captured by the Nazis. And then Harrison Ford brings it with him when he comes to rescue him. So uh-huh. the Nazis get it. And Sean Connery says, I should have mailed it to the Marx Brothers. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that. I haven't seen that one in, in, in forever. Uh, I need to give it another go. Okay, this next message comes from Tend. It is also about Arena. Uh, Tend says, Dear Robert and Joe, I've been a listener of your show for years and am particularly enjoying the recent Weird House Cinema episodes. The choices you featured really are my types of movies. I think that's because I appreciate seeing how well a production company, film crew, and actors can do without having much of a budget. Even though this means the walls sometimes shake and performances are less than convincing, I love seeing those involved earnestly strain in their depictions. I had a real flutter of excitement when I saw you'd picked Arena to discuss, as I'd watched it not so long ago with my wife and brother-in-law. We were very much entertained by the varied and inventive alien designs as you described them. There was one thing I was waiting for you to point out about the movie, something I couldn't believe I had seen and so needed to rewind and pause it to confirm as we watched. During fight scenes in the arena itself, the camera often cuts to the audience and you can see many unmoving dummies filling out the crowd. (laughs) It's unbelievably badly done, looks fully ludicrous, and just made me love it more. You won't be able to watch arena now without seeing this, I promise. Thanks to you and your team for all your work. I'm looking forward to the future episodes. Uh, and then there's a different name at the end of this than the name at the beginning, which was Tend. I'll just stick with Tend. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't. I did not notice these um, these mannequins uh, when watching the film. I, I didn't guess I was Too distracted by the the, the cool aliens, but uh, it makes sense that they would be there. You need to fill out a stadium uh, or something that looks like a stadium. You might want to plant some uh, some fake butts in the fake seats. You, you know what this means is you were so riveted to the action in the center of the frame that you were not you were not even tempted to wander around with your eyes to the periphery and see who might be sitting in the audience. Another thing could be, you know, at this point in the pandemic, like we're just not used to seeing live crowd shots anymore. Right. So it's yeah. like, oh, wow, that that looks right. That, that must be what it's, it looks like to watch sports or something with uh, with a, with an audience viewing it. I, so this is weird. There are some shows that are they ha, they're used to having a live studio audience, and now they still do. But it's clearly a much redu- like people are sitting very far apart from each other, and there are many fewer of them. Mm-hmm. And so when they clap, 
it sounds so pathetic. It's, it's, <laughs> you know, it sounds like five people clapping and it's just like, it would be better without any applause than every joke or line getting like a, you know, a smattering of laughter from five or six people or, you know, what, what sounds like two people clapping in an empty hall. Is this of what it was? Did Saturday Night Live do this? Is this what you're referencing? No, I feel like I've, I've just seen a couple of like talk shows, like late oh, night talk okay. shows doing something like this. Okay. Well, I guess my, yeah, my only experience has been watching stuff like, um, like Colbert and Daily Show, which don't have, they, they're not even pretending to have an audience. And then I, I kind of keep up with some of the pro wrestling. So I kind of note how different players in that sport have been reacting to it. Like you have, uh, for instance, uh, you know, some places uh, and then sometimes during the pandemic, just having no audience at all or to having like a completely fake audience of just people from the locker room come out and, mm-hmm. and you know, be enthusiastic or you have a smattering option or you have like a high tech, like fill the audience with TV screens and have people like zoom in to attend. I mean, there's there's so many different uh, approaches that have been taken. None of them perfect, but. But it's interesting to see, kind of like uh, the, the 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 listener mail earlier talking about the uh, the earnest straining, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes that is the most interesting part. I've got an idea that I think they should do. This seems perfectly realistic to me. I mean, so on one hand, it would seem very fake if you were to just pipe in fake laughter or fake applause at each applause line, like in a sitcom, you know. Uh-huh. But I think you could do real electronic laughter or applause where there are a bunch of electronic viewers and they can like press a certain button. They're watching in real time and they can press a certain button every time they want to either laugh or applaud. And that will create one sound of one person laughing or applauding. And so you get real reactions like the jokes that actually get uproarious laughter will get uproarious laughter uh, organically, but mediated through electronic devices and, and the ones that kind of bomb, you'll hear them bomb. That's what I think should happen. Yeah. Yeah. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Ian. Ian writes, even though this isn't a comedy podcast, I derive some great belly laughs from your show. Uh, you both know when to use it and when not to. Uh, better leave some songs unsung than to sing them out of season, right? You're wise and worthy singers. Anyway, I wanted to tell you, Joe, that I genuinely laughed out loud by myself when you said, I want to see Chewbacca fight Jabba the Hutt from Arena <laughs> episode, LOL. You couldn't have picked a funnier match from Star Wars. Good jest, sir. Peace out. Love you guys. Uh, Ian. Uh, from oh. St. Louis. Uh, Ian, the, the, far too kind, but uh, I think I – am I seeing this right that you were quoting from the Kalevala, I think, right? If I'm getting this right, I think at the beginning of your your uh, message, you're quoting a couple of lines. Uh, the better to leave some songs unsung than sing them out of season. Is that not from the Kalevala that we read in a previous episode? Oh, I think you might be right, yeah. Yeah. Very, very good uh, uh, deep, deep reference there. Yeah. And yeah, Chewbacca fighting Jabba the Hutt, that's a good matchup. Um, there, there, there are probably some others we could, we could really brainstorm if we set our minds to it. I don't know. Um, like a, a Wampa versus four Jawas stacked on top of each other in a <laughs> trench coat. That would be neat. What if you had a fight between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Boba Fett's dad? That'd be really weird. Oh, we had that. <laughs> <laughs> we had that. That one's, that, I watched that, that one the other day. That was my joke. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, the the boy and I uh, watched the first half of Attack of the Clones together, um, and, uh, and that, that's a pretty solid fight scene. I like that one. Okay. 
you got the various Mandalorian weapons uh, in 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 play there against the Jedi. Mm-hmm. You got kind of a you kind of a neat fight environment. Oh, here's one. I think we should someday, uh, if we're if we're feeling uh, especially fresh, we should do an episode of invention that's basically a Boba Fett invention special where we discuss all of his gadgets. This I we know I actually did a blog post about this at samudamusic.com. Oh, uh, where I um. I kind of uh, waxed, uh, maybe not philosophical, but I, I, I contemplated the weapons of the Mandalorian and was thinking about like the idea of of the Mandalorian armor as being on one hand, everything is geared about fighting a Jedi, like how to best engage a Jedi and survive or even um, emerge victorious. But mm-hmm. then also you get into this idea of their armor and their weapons being a, a parts of their religion, uh, which is a, a fabulous topic with, with parallels to the real world. You think of things like the, the Sikh uh, religion and all, mm-hmm. um, but it got me thinking like what additional, connotations might be absorbed by some of these weapons like the idea of say like the jetpack does the jetpack then become something that symbolizes not is you know not just about escaping distance creating distance between yourself and a jedi who's a deadly melee combatant mm-hmm. but also something about the spirit you know like the ascension of the spirit um perhaps the fire uh like the little flamethrower in the wrist like that becomes something about like the purifying flame or something you know like there's so many directions you could go in with all these different details of the armor or they could almost be like the iconography you encounter in a Hindu deity. Like each, you know, each little detail has some sort of important meaning uh, to um, those who would be, you know, uh, literate of those symbols. Well, if you're going to be realistic about jetpacks, it would, unless uh, I've not kept up to date about what jetpacks are capable of these days, it seems like it should symbolize uh, riding a dragon or riding a tiger, you know, something yeah. that will very likely kill you and get out of control. That that's often how it goes <laughs> for yeah. the Mandalorians, but you know it's like short term um, victories, I mm-hmm. guess, is what they're they're focused on. All right, well the the, the buzzer on the mailbot is going off. That means uh, the, the time is uh, is ended for today. Uh, that's it for this episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind Listener Mail. But we'll be back next week with more listener mail. So just tune in then. Uh, in the meantime, definitely feel free to reach out to us. Uh, your responses to past episodes, your responses to this listener mail. Uh, you know, keep the conversation going by getting in touch with us. And if you would like to listen to the show, just remember the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed can be found wherever you get your podcast and wherever that happens to be just rate review and subscribe huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun season. King's Island is now open on weekends. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't sister. know we were going to go there on this. <laughs> People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in exactly. to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy. Yeah. Right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.